So it's a really good book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by O'Brien and Richards, and they uh, open uh, a chapter with this particular story uh, of a professor who did an experiment. He had 12 students read the story of the prodigal son, had them close their Bible, and then retell it to the person next to them. Interestingly enough, zero of the 12 even mentioned the fact that there is a famine in the story of the prodigal son. This piqued his curiosity, so he expanded his study to 100 students. He asked 100 students to read the story of the prodigal son, to uh, close their Bible and retell it. Six out of 100 mentioned the famine, which is a pretty significant detail in the story. Well, he went overseas, this professor, to St. Petersburg, Russia, where he did the exact same experiment. He asked 50 students to read it, retell it, and 42 out of 50 talked about the famine. And why was that? Well, just a few years prior to the study, uh, the Germans laid siege to the city uh, for three years, and 670,000-plus people died of starvation. Hunger and famine was very much part of the story of that country. People who live in very privileged settings like us often have a hard time identifying with the poor and the powerless. We have a hard time even identifying with it when we read it in the Bible. We often read right over it. But if you look at the scriptures, you see from cover to cover, there is a great emphasis on God's concern for the oppressed, God's concern for the powerless, God's concern for the orphan. In Psalm 146, the psalm we just read, you read about God's concern. In fact, the psalmist is praising God because he is the God who watches over the sojourner. He is the God who cares for the fatherless. He is the God who watches over the widow, who sets prisoners free, who feeds the hungry, the Lord who reigns forever. He's praised in Psalm 146 because that's who he is. And I would like to talk for a moment about why you should care about the global orphan crisis and what you can do about it. Statistically, we are told that there are about 153 million orphans worldwide. About 17 million of them are double orphaned. That is, they've lost both parents. The others are orphaned as well, but sometimes they're put in orphanages because uh, one parent can't take care of them. Every day, there are 5,760 more children that become orphans. 14 million children grow up as orphans and age out of the system by age 16. Studies have shown that 10 to 15% of these children commit suicide before they're 18. These same studies show that about 60% of these girls who age out of the system become prostitutes and 70% of the boys become hardened criminals. You think about the vast number of orphans around the world. As we talk about taking the gospel to the nations, do you realize that if orphans were a country, they would be about the eighth or ninth largest country in the world? When we talk about taking the gospel to the nations, that includes a large number of orphans who need the gospel. And sometimes when we talk about evangelism and the least reached peoples of the world, they exist in these same countries. Where you go find the poor, you often find the unevangelized, and where you find the unevangelized, you often find the poor. And so I want to give you this, this, uh, this afternoon nine biblical motivations for why you should care about the orphan crisis and some, something to do about it. 
some general ways to, to care about it. Some of you might know our story. We've adopted five children, my wife and I. We have four kids from Ukraine. We have one from Ethiopia. We went from zero kids to four. We went to Ukraine to get two, came back with four. It was a, it's a long story. And, and, and so now we have, we have five, and people often ask us questions like, why? Uh, you know, do you have a complex? Do you have a short guy complex? Do you have a bald guy complex? Do you want to get on Oprah? Like, like what's your deal, man? Uh, do you want my kids? I'm happy to give you my kids as well if you like kids so much. And we, we always answer them the same way when they don't know what to do with it. We always say, we were motivated by theology, not biology. Because most people assume infertility with, with uh, adoption. And we say, it was our view of God and what we, what, what we found in the scriptures related to this subject. I was invited to teach at a youth camp about eight years ago on the poor. And they asked me to teach on the poor. And I found that in many ways, the poorest of the poor are orphans. And I was bothered by the fact as I was doing this study and I was looking at the statistics that I could not name one orphan. And I considered myself spiritually mature. I could name bands, speakers, authors. I didn't know an orphan. And this haunted me. And I'm preaching to people about caring for orphans. I was convicted by my own preaching. You have any idea how miserable that is to be convicted by your own preaching? So I go to my wife and I said, baby, we, we had a big house at the time. We were living in New Orleans. I said, I want some kids. And she was like, well, how do you want to get them? I'm like, well, I think there are two ways, right? Um, one's a little bit more enjoyable than the other, um, it, it, at least for the guy. But since we haven't been you know, blessed in this way yet, uh, I think we should consider adoption. And so she was like, well, well, where do you want to get the kids from? And I was like, as an, I played baseball in high school and college. I said, the Dominican Republic. That's where I want to get kids from. I, I would like to, uh, I, I, we, we need nine. I want to get nine Miguels. And, and we're just going to dominate Little League. And she was like, that's a horrible motivation. And I, I still question her about that. So anyway, she, she wanted some Eastern European daughters. We got uh, quali- certified and qualified, went through the whole process. And we went to Ukraine again to, to get to, and we found a sibling group of four, ages four, six, seven, and nine. We've been married six years. Now we had a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. Sometimes I drop that in at pastor's conferences with no context, and it just, it's a fantastic look on their face. And so, um, but when we, when we say to people that it's, it's theology, uh, what I want people to understand is that your theology determines your biography. What you believe inevitably determines how you're going to live, because you always do that which you believe. A person who says they believe something, but they don't follow it with action, I would say at least at that moment, they're not believing it. Your theology determines your biography. And so what was it that we saw that just wrecked our lives? And I hope might, might wreck your, your life in a, in a good way. Nine biblical motivations. I'm going to hit them quickly. Why orphan care? First of all, because of our vision of God. Our vision of God. Who we believe God is not only should drive us to care for the orphan and the oppressed, but it also sustains us while we're doing it. The same motivation that propels us sustains us. That's why I love Psalm 146, because the psalmist begins in verse 1, saying, I want to praise God with my whole being. While I live, I want to praise Him. He wants a life of sustained praise. And so I would say, first of all, if a person cares about wanting to do something with, with, with orphans, I would say, first of all, you need to stand in awe of God. There is nothing more dangerous than to lose your awe of God. If you lose your awe of God, you're a walking disaster zone. 
It's the, it's, the, it's the priority of my own heart every day is to stand in awe of him. And the more you see him, the more you behold him, the more your heart begins to, to be, be shaped by him. William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade and slavery in England, memorized Psalm 119, 176 verses. What is it that sustained this guy in the work of justice and mercy? It was his vision of God. Why care? Because of who God is. Because of who God is. Secondly, we want to imitate God. When you, when you read Psalms like Psalm 146, the goal is for us to be drawn up into worship, but also to reflect Him. Right? We become what we behold. If we're beholding Him, if we're seeing Him, we will want to be like Him. We will want to imitate Him. Tim Keller, pastor and redeemer, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in, in New York says, sometimes I go speak at places and they ask me, how do you want to be introduced? And I typically just say, tell them I'm Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He says, that's not the only thing I do, but that's the main thing I do in public life. And he says, one of the ways we can introduce the, the, the Christian God is father to the fatherless. It's not the only thing he does, but that's one feature of his character. If it, this is who he is, we want to be marked by him, don't we? We want to imitate him. We want to reflect him. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. This doesn't mean everybody's going to adopt a slew of kids, but it does mean we should all be imitating God. We should be displaying mercy and justice and compassion to this broken world. My son Joshua, uh, we were driving baseball practice a couple years ago, and he said, Papa, I want to adopt from every country. Ethiopia, China, Ukraine, and Kentucky. He's like, he's like, Kentucky's a country, right? And I have something like that. And his little heart has already grasped the fact that, that he has been a recipient of mercy, and he wants to display it. And that should be the natural instinct of the child of God. Thirdly, because people matter to God. We care about orphans because people matter. You know, our church is called Imago Day, and we catch a lot of, a lot of heat for this, this name because people don't know. First of all, they can't say it. They're like, you go to that Joe DiMaggio church? And like, no, it's called Imago Day. One guy said he thought it meant, I'm going to go to church today. And like, no, man, that's, that's not it either. Uh, <laughs> my favorite was J.D. Greer, who, who uh, fake J.D. Greer, actually, who said, uh, you should have, bring a friend day at your church. It could be Imago Day, Amigo Day. <laughs> and so we're thinking about doing that. Now, why would you call a church Imago Day? Well, we want to emphasize the fact that everybody is created in God's image. Therefore, they matter to God. To, to assault a human being in any way from the womb to the tomb is ultimately assault on God himself. We're assaulting the one who made them. You think about why, do, why does anybody visit George Washington's home in Mount Vernon? Why do people go there? Well, it's a nice house, but the reason they like it is because of the maker of the house, the owner of the house. We value the house because we value the maker. We value people, including orphans because we value their maker. We value their God. And we, need a, we really need a revival of honor when it comes to human life. Fourthly, as a response to the grace of God. We care because we have been shown grace. 
I mean, the people who should be known for, for demonstrating grace and mercy are the people who have received it. Psalm 146 is just showing us a, the, the grace of God. It's fully developed in the New Testament as Jesus is the one who sets captives free, Jesus who feeds the hungry physically, spiritually, Jesus who, who brings orphans into the, to, into the kingdom. One of the things we, we have to realize when it comes to the least of these is that we should, we should understand that we identify with them. We are not superior to the poor. We are not superior to the orphan. We're not superior to the stranger. In the gospel, we are them. We were the poor having nothing to offer to God when he brought us to the family. We were the orphan abandoned, having no family until he adopted us. We were the stranger roaming around, wandering without a, uh, without a home and he brought us into the family. We were the widow without a groom and Jesus became that for us. We, we as, as, as a gospel people, should realize that the proper response to grace is grace. For the rest of your life, you should be known for demonstrating grace. Why? Because that's what you've received. None of us deserve to be in this family. None of us deserve to be in this kingdom, but here we are. Therefore, the instinct, the gospel instinct should be one of, of open-handed generosity and love. Fifthly, we want to care because we want to be doers of the Word of God. We don't want to just study the Bible. We want to do the Bible. I love James 1.27 that talks about caring for orphans in their affliction. And the context of James is right after he says, don't just be a hearer of the Word, deceiving yourself, but be a doer of it. I often give this illustration. Imagine you come over to my house on Saturday. Saturday is typically chore day at our house. You're all invited, by the way. I mean, not at all the same time, but let's come over to the house and we, we line them up, you know, one's got vacuuming, one's doing the dishes, uh, one's uh, got the pooper scooper job in the backyard, uh, one's doing yard work, uh, and one's dusting. And let's just say I bring them in, I give them great instruction, great detailed explanation, and I leave and I come back three or four hours later and they haven't moved. I gather them up and I'm like, hey kids, did you not understand the instructions? Oh yeah, Papa, we understood. Wait, was the teaching clear? Yes, it was clear. Well, it doesn't look like you've done anything. Well, Papa, see what we've done is we, we started some small groups on vacuuming. And we've, we've got this little conference coming up actually on, on how to do yard work. And we even got the Greek word for dust. And we're gonna write some curriculum about this stuff. And my point to giving my kids instruction is not for them just to sit around and talk about the instruction and to parse out the words for orphan. It's to do it. It's to obey it. And we desperately need to hear this in this age of information. This is called the information age. It will not be called the application age. God has given us his word to live it out. Spiritual maturity is not about what you know. It's about how you live. It's about how you live. And so one of the reasons we want to act is because this is why God's given us his word. Yes, we want to study it rightly. Yes, we want to understand it. We have to. But once we understand it, I think a lot of people use it as a spiritual excuse. We just want to have more studies. I think we need more action. Sixthly, to display the kingdom of God. We want to care for orphans because we are part of a kingdom that is, that, well, it's coming. It's here. It's not fully here yet. And one of the things that you do when you care for the least of these is you're giving people a little foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. 
You're showing the world what the king is like, what the kingdom is like. And the local church is a little outpost of this kingdom. They're a little embassy of the kingdom. People should see the way the church looks and works and just sort of scratch their head and say, you guys aren't from around here, are you? Like, look how you care for these people. What are they doing at your house? And why are you going here? And how, why are you spending your money like that? That's because we're part of a different kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. I think this instinct that's in all of us for justice is ultimately a longing for Jesus. The longing for justice in the human heart is there, I think, because we all long for Jesus, who's going to bring ultimate justice, who's going to bring ultimate shalom, where the lion and the lamb dwell together. And we who are his people get to bring the future into the present by caring for the least of these. We get to show the world what our king is like. That's a great motivation. Seventhly, we want to do this because everything we do in Jesus' name matters to God. Everything we do. I love Luke 14 when he says, if you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. They can't repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Like who you have over for dinner matters. Jesus has taken note of it. Everything we do in his name matters. It's not insignificant if it's done in his name. Now, the challenge when you pour out your, your life for the unreached and for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, is that many of them, a lot of them perhaps, will not say thank you. You won't even get, you know, uh, you, you won't be interviewed by Fox News or CNN. I remember thinking when we adopted these kids, they're just going to write praise songs about us. They're just going to think we're incredible, you know? That's not how it works, man. Like, we had a little girl just went crazy on the airplane. And a stewardess comes by, very well intended, is like, does she want a cookie? And she needs Ambien. She needs a tranquilizer. She needs, she needs something other than this. And you would, you would think you pull kids out of an orphanage. I mean, they're just high-fiving you and loving you. And Why do you do it? You care for that snotty-nosed kid down the street. You, you, you pour yourself out for the poor. We don't do it for what we get in this life. Not to say that you won't get something in this life. But we do it because Jesus Christ himself says, you give a cup of cold water in my name you won't lose your reward. Jesus fills up what some would consider ordinary mundane activities with eternal meaning. Everything you do in his name matters. I remember Alistair Begg telling a great story of preaching at a nursing home. He was going over there every Sunday and he said, when I would preach, they would just start sleeping after like five minutes. And he asked the senior minister, he's like, hey, aren't we sort of like wasting our time here? And the guy was like, Alistair, I think you've forgotten. We don't do it ultimately for them. We do it unto him. That's why we do it. And that's reason number eight. We do it as an act of honor to the son of God. You know, here's the thing about the orphan. Orphans have faces. They have real faces, and they have another face, and that face is a Galilean carpenter. And every time we care for them, in Jesus' name, Jesus says in Matthew 25, we've done it unto him. And what, what, what greater motivation do we need? Ninthly, finally, because orphans need the gospel of God. <clears throat> J.I. Packer says that the doctrine of adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Many orphans are not adoptable physically. They will not enjoy many of the privileges that you and I will enjoy in this life. 
but they can enjoy the greatest privilege in the whole world if they know God as Father. And one of the great blessings we have in visiting orphanages, in doing sponsorships, in participating with the orphan care in our local churches, is we get to introduce these children to the Savior. We're not the Savior, but we can introduce them to the Savior and give them the greatest privilege of all of life. So those are nine reasons. Those are nine reasons that that compel me, and I pray it would be helpful for you. In the remaining time, just four, five ways here for you to think about how you can engage. How can you do something about the global orphan crisis? First of all, we need to all acknowledge our insufficiency. Like the unreached people groups of the world, this is a massive undertaking, and uh, we need God's help. I often say that orphan care is warfare. At every level, it's going to be warfare. I tell adoptive parents, hey, if you, when, you, when you set out to adopt kids, you don't think romantic music. Think gladiator. Like it's on, okay? It's, it's warfare. We, we need God's help. We don't put our trust in princes, as Psalm 146 says, in human resources. We put our, our trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Secondly, we need to accept responsibility. Again, not everybody's going to adopt children. Not all the children in the world are available for adoption, but we can all do something. James 1.27 says this is true religion. So let's think about what we can do. Most people that you meet today would not say they hate orphans. I mean, the only person I've heard say that is uh, the guy Stephen on Nacho Libre, um, who, who, uh, you know, the story, Nacho, he moonlights as a wrestler to help feed the orphans. And his buddy's getting tired of Nacho talking about the orphans. He's like, I hate all the orphans in the whole world. And he's like, I'm not listening to you. You only believe in science. He's the only guy that I would say. Now, here's the thing, though. C.S. Lewis says, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Indifference. So if love is not being lived out, then what is it? If it's not hate, what is it that we can do? Thirdly, I'm going to encourage you to start sensibly. We can't do it all. Start small. Start small. My son Joshua and I were playing basketball a few weeks ago, and he, he looked at me with a ball, and he's like, Papa, when, when, uh, when I go to college, should I go pro after my freshman year or sophomore year? <laughs> I was like, hey, Pat, how about you make the middle school team first? Let's, let's just start on the middle school, okay? That's my deal with orphan care. Let, let's, let's make the middle school team first. Maybe a sponsorship, maybe a trip, maybe something involved in your local church. Start sensibly. Fourthly, act wisely. We can, we can actually create damage if we don't act wisely when it comes to orphan care. Work with good organizations. There's a great one in the lobby, 127 Worldwide. There's a, one we partner with as our, our, at our local church. Partner with the experts, partner with the specialists. And then finally, and I could unravel this for another 25 minutes, we have to act holistically. We need holistic orphan care which involves speaking up for them, adopting them, fostering, sponsoring, caring for the functionally fatherless in our neighborhoods, practicing hospitality, engaging with your local church, training leaders, maybe even moving, visiting, fighting human trafficking, big need, providing transitional assistance to those who age out of these orphanages. It's one of the ways your vocation can really make a difference in helping create sustainable living for orphans. We have a guy we just sent over to help train pig farmers so orphans can make a a living so that they can have a sustainable life. 
Who would ever thought you could use pig farming for the good of the nations, for the good of the gospel? So leverage your vocation. This past Christmas, I, I, I introduced my kids to one of my favorite movies called It's a Wonderful Life. Old movie, right? James Stewart, he's in Bedford Falls. He's poured out his whole life helping his community. But he's discouraged, he's de- depressed, he's thinking about suicide. When Clarence the angel comes down to help him and to get his wings, not very good theology, but hang with me. Clarence comes down and he shows him what, he, what the community would look like if he had never been born. And it was called Pottersville, a sleazy little town. And I showed it to my kids because I love the question in that movie. What would this world look like if you would never have been born? And even broader, what would this world look like if your church did not exist? Well, by God's grace, we can make a difference in this world. We're not going to eradicate the whole orphan crisis, but we can do something. We have the greatest number of volunteers. We have the greatest motivations for going. We've got a Savior who demonstrated this type of love, the one who died, rose, gave us his spirit, and empowered us to do it, the one who looked at his disciples and said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he came for us. And now let's go to them. Thanks.